Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, I'm Charlie Shrem. This is one of those episodes where there was an epic saga, a story of something that happened in crypto and Bitcoin many, many, many years ago. The whole Neo and B saga by Danny Brewster. This was a whole blow up situation where Neo and B was supposed to launch retail trading stores and all of a sudden Danny disappeared and all the stores and employees shuttered. This happened during 2013 when Bitcoin was getting a lot of mainstream like attention. So Danny went on his own sabbatical, had his own dealings with the criminal justice system, and now he's back and he's launching his new company called Fast Bitcoin. And he's here to set the record straight. This is exclusive information. He's never talked to anyone. And now Danny is here. I'm happy to say that we're very cordial and respectful and nice. And it was a great interview, but at the same time, hard hitting. And I wasn't afraid to ask the questions that needed to be asked. I'll talk to you guys just in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Bitpanda and Peppo, for making today's episodes possible. We'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm here today with Danny Brewster. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Danny, I'm sitting here. I had to like close up, you know, COVID-19, quarantine, lockdown, had to move my studio to like, I had to condense my studio and my office into one. So it's like, just, this is like my first episode, not with my audio engineer, but we're going to make it happen. But it's actually nicer. I feel like, I feel like someone who's going to work in their like sweatpants who usually goes in a suit, like I'm not in the studio. So I'm doing the show from home a little bit, a little, a little more laid back. See, I, I gave up the whole suit and office thing, uh, quite a while ago. So I've, I've been working from home for the last three and a half, four years. And it just every day is just like a normal day, uh, even though that we've uh, somewhat gone into a lockdown ourselves. So but the only difference is the family's here, the kids are here. Um, and my office is literally a shed down the bottom of my garden uh, that's being converted yeah. into my office. Um, so I'm in my own little man cave as per usual. But the only difference is the kids are here at home. Um, so every day just feels like a Sunday at the moment. We have a pretty, we have a pretty crazy story. You and I, how, um, our stories were very parallel. Um, and I was reviewing some old emails from 2013 and our stories, uh, our personal stories did like intertwine for a little bit there. Um, yeah, we they, have one conversation. We I remember did. it well, very we well. We tried having a meeting, uh, in Cyprus and, um, which I, it was funny because I went to Cyprus because I had banking issues in the US and you left Cyprus to the UK because you had some banking issues in Cyprus. So it was like, we, we couldn't meet because, and you were living there at the time, 
But um, I feel like we were both victims of our own success, but also um, (laughs) victims of our own demise. Um, And you'll see where I'm going with this. I I feel like we've both made a lot of mistakes and and we're both have been willing to, you know, own up and, and admit to them. And then we've both put ourselves on a sabbatical. Mine was forced. Yours was voluntary. Um, uh, mine was forced, really. Yours was forced too, yeah. you know. Um, and then we're trying to get a second chance. And 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 so when I, you know, came back to the crypto community in 2017, um, I was a little nervous whether like the community would uh, accept me. Uh, you know, even doing this show. Uh, but I, I noticed that the world does love a comeback kid, and and people do like giving second chances. Although you have to be a lot more careful. Have you noticed? Uh, you know, before we get into the whole thing, but have you noticed like um, yourself in this, like, I'm looking for a second chance mode? Have people been willing to give you that second chance? Have people been not willing to give you that second chance? The the people that I've found um, that are, are most opposed to to my presence are the ones that <clears throat> either were impacted minimally by what happened or not at all. Um, the people that uh, essentially lost the most through uh, backing Neo and B and stuff, they've been absolutely uh, cool uh, to the point that uh, a couple of them have like really helped um, with the, the the process of the new developments and, and everything like that. They've um, been way above and beyond everything I've expected. And they know um, like the level of gratitude that, that I have for them for, for showing that uh, to me. And the, the biggest problem that I've faced is, uh, and it's, it's 100% my fault. I've always said uh, everything that happened was my fault. Um, and the, uh, the resulting um, what happened and the lack of information and the, the what basically enabled uh, rampant speculation and conspiracy uh, around what was happening uh, with myself and the, the company uh, and everything like that um, was due to uh, my own failures in dealing with it correctly. So <clears throat> it, it's ultimately, I can't really moan uh, about people uh, hating on me or um, talking smack about me or anything like that. Um, that's on on them. Uh, all I can do is continue to, to build something that people use, which I am doing, um, and just move on from there. So, you know, there's uh, an interesting like resignation, right? When people are talking shit on you, like to your face, whether like publicly on the internet or like in person, when you've kind of like, you kind of like to yourself, yes, I know, I know. And I've been through it. I've done my time, you know, in, in my case, and, and I've repaid my debts and started to and, and tried to make it better. And in your case, and it's there's like a like, okay, like do we have to do this again? Do we have to bring back the past? You know what I mean? Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I'm really looking forward to to this interview and talk with you. Uh, I th- I feel that it's when when I first saw that you was doing it, I thought that's brilliant. Uh, hopefully, one day. He'll ask me to come on. Uh, one thing I'll never do is go and beg people to be on their show and stuff like that. Um, so you just inbox me and it's like, yeah, of course I will. Um, so because of the the whole, it's, it's a chance for me to be able to point to it in the future and say, if you want to talk about everything that came before what we're doing now with fast Bitcoins uh, and stuff, just listen to that and then come back to me with any questions. Um, and then we'll take it from there. 
I I don't like listening to other interviews. Although the other pod, it's funny because the other podcasters in the space we're all we're all really good friends. Pomp, you know, Peter McCormick, um, Eric, all all the other podcasters. But we don't like to listen to each other's shows because it kind of uh, if we overlap guests, uh, it sometimes it could ruin it. You know, I like to hear things for the first time, and it's actually nice when multiple podcasters will have good ones at least because there are a lot of really bad podcasts out there. You have multiple ones that have the same guest on, it, it gives a nicer picture. Um, although, you know, I see your point and I, and I am looking forward to this interview. And I want to tell you something, actually. Um, while I, so I do a lot of preparation for the show and I was sitting with my wife last night and, and she's like, we have it on the show tomorrow. And I said, I'm having Danny Brewster. And she goes, oh, make sure you tell him about Jake. And so, so I've talked about Jake before we start the show because I'm going to get he, all emotional. He came over. I'm uh, get all emotional yeah, this and I sadly, sadly we lost him. Um, yeah, so so there's when Jake came over to visit you, um, you know, I have to say, so most people, I, I actually want to, I've been wanting to start like a fund called like the Jake Donnell Shitcoin Fund or something like that. <laughs> he was the original, like, he was the original guy. Like he, so he, most people, so he passed away. We lost him very early. We lost him, and I think it was, uh, it was like two years ago. It was, 2017 and he um he was an he was one of the first people in 2012 maybe 2013 to leave morgan stanley in such a fashion right and this was the days when bitcoin wasn't worth anything there were no jobs there were no companies right there were very little there was like bit instant it was my company and i was like struggling to even just offer health insurance so there were no like coinbases there were no silicon valley these were very early days it was like BitPay. So Jake loved Bitcoin so much that he walked into Morgan Stanley, literally told them to go like F themselves, quit in such a crazy fashion, just went home to his rent control department, called me up and all the other Bitcoiners up, which was like 12 of us all in New York and said like, I quit my job. I love Bitcoin. Just come over and I'm going to cook for you. And literally you just go to his every day and he cooked for people. He loved cooking. And it became like a, proof of stake, you know, he was the original proof of stake. And then finally, <laughs> he was able to get into Bitcoin. And then he came over to visit you. And so tell me like that, how that story went when you first met him. Um, well, he came over actually with somebody from Ripple, uh, believe it or not, the the ultimate shitcoin of shitcoins. Um, I can't remember exactly who it was. Um, but there was uh, four or five of them. And they was looking to uh, they was um, looking to uh, start a hedge fund and they was in talks with the central bank of cyprus um to, to speak with the um the regulators uh, of the markets and uh CISEC as well in uh, in cyprus uh, we already had open dialogues with them uh, apart from the central bank the central bank would never talk to us um but they would continuously put out um stories in the the the, the media and stuff like that uh, with regards to how dangerous bitcoin was and uh, and things like that um but um Sisek, uh, would sit down with us and would have regular meetings with them uh, and they would constantly tell us every time oh we can't do anything until um it, it gets told uh, we uh, the European Union tell us basically what we uh, can do and what we can't do. So they'd been for a meeting with Sisek. They come back to us exactly the same um, uh, frustrations that we got every single time we sat down with Sisek. Um, 
and uh, he just had a had a look around. It was the first time I ever met him in person. Uh, but he took a load a load of like early like t shirts. Funnily so enough, those t shirts, and he wore that shirt on stage. Every, no, not just on stage, but everywhere. <laughs> no, he he never took that shirt off. I swear, I I think he like uh, he may have passed away in that shirt. To be honest, like I don't know, and I could call up the person who was in the room when he passed away and find out. And I may actually, after we hang up, but I swear he may have passed away in that shirt. Really? And, yeah. I'm telling you, he wore, I, I, I literally have a folder in my phone called Jake Donnell photos. Cause I, you know, like we became, it was, I'm, I'm 30 years old. Right. And, and Jake was, it was a, when Jake passed, it was one of the first, it was the first time in my life that I experienced a close friend passing abruptly. Yeah. So for the listeners who know that experience, and unfortunately it's a, it's a sad experience, when you have a friend who one day you're texting and the next day you're not, it's a very, uh, there's like an empty feeling. And Jake and I, and my wife and I included, she was also close to him. A lot of other people were too. So he wore that shirt all the time. And so he ended up like starting a shitcoin fund, ended up being with Brian Kelly from CNBC before he passed away and did a lot of other crazy things, was a blockchain architect at Ipit. Um such a wonderful one guy, but passed away before the epic bull market. He never got to see crypto Twitter, never got to see any of this other stuff. But but I want to move on from that. I want to ask you a question that I kind of always wanted to ask you. You you and I have the same, we both saw a need in early 2013, right? Uh, for people to buy Bitcoin, to get the hand, Bitcoin in the hands of these of these people. Yeah. Why did you go brick and mortar when I went all digital? See, I was, uh, I had the dumb idea. Um, <laughs> being in Cyprus, I was doing the, the research whilst all of the, the bank bail-ins and everything was was going on because I had the, the super dumb idea that, yeah, this, these people would love this. Um, it would be the, the solution to all of their problems. And it ultimately wasn't. But the, the whole bricks and mortar thing was because people in Cyprus are very stuck in their ways. And every bit of uh, feedback that I had was people may be up for trying something new if it doesn't deviate away from their behaviors far too much. And everything online in Cyprus at that point in time, there's no e-commerce because the card payment processes were, uh, it was a monopoly basically. And anything online was high risk. So you was paying like 10, 15, 20% in fees with 30, 60 or 90 uh, day settlement terms, which nobody can really work with uh, too well in business. And so everything was still on the ground, bricks and mortar branches. That's what they was used to with the bank. Nobody really did online banking. What was going on in Cyprus at this time, though? Like, what was happening? Um, if you believed all the newspapers um, and the, the Bitcoin media, uh, in quotation marks, they... Uh, everybody was rushing into Bitcoin when they ultimately wasn't. People was more bothered about how am I going to feed my my family next week because the uh, banks are all closed. I can only take so much out of the bank. How much am I going to have left in the bank? Because it was all up in the air to start with, uh, with regards to the the bailings. It, originally, they was trying to take eight um, percent of everything over a thousand euros out of people's bank accounts. That was the first proposal, and people quite rightly got angry uh, and agitated about that. So they went away and then came back with uh, 50% of everything over 100,000 um, would be haircut from people's banks. So a lot of businesses um, that had 
cash holdings that was waiting to to pay like do, uh, run payroll and stuff like that suddenly found themselves with a lot less cash on account than what they uh, had previously, and the uh, the resulting um, like fallout from that uh, some businesses shut down and stuff like that, and um, I think what we're seeing now today with all of this uh, money printing uh, and everything is uh, going to um, make uh, 2008, 2009 and uh, 2012, 2013 in Cyprus look like child's play um, going forward. But at that time, people weren't really yeah. interested in Bitcoin. Um, I, I was living in a bubble. I had the, the dumb idea uh, of like the physical branches and stuff, um, which we recognized. Um, and also part of the, the downfall was um, we we started doing too much uh, and spread ourselves too thin, uh, trying to address um, the, the flaws in the original business plan uh, to, gener- to start generating revenues. Uh, we was uh, in talks or we... Uh, agreed with Zipzap, who you are extremely familiar with. Oh yeah, we're uh, too. Yeah, um, so we had agreed with them for like the UK and across Europe um, to integrate with them to uh, basically create a European version of BitInstant um, called Neo EasyCoin. Uh, we had the domain EasyCO.in. Uh, we had all of that developed, um, and then Alan uh, and we was like pushing and ready to to go uh, before everything uh, exploded. Um, so, but yeah, the, the bricks and mortar idea was just wrong. And it was because I didn't want to deviate too much away from what people was used to. I mean, I don't blame you um, for not wanting to deviate from what people were used to. But at the same time, um, I think because you chose physical and because what was going on in Cyprus at the time, um, you saw and, you know, we saw a, a huge banking crisis. Uh, in Cyprus at the time, which was one of the reasons that Bitcoin got propelled. You were like really caught up in that whole aspect of it. And then you had the crazy media frenzy. And then because of the fact that you were physical, the media and the world likes to have like pictures and videos of physical buildings and people on the, you know, on their shows, you became like the poster child for Bitcoin for a minute. Yeah, um, even still on CNBC, on their news articles, they or if there's ever a ne- negative story about Bitcoin, they seem to use this picture of a woman walking past a door um, that's got the Bitcoin logo and the woman's got uh, an umbrella. Um, and that is actually the, the door to our developer's office, um, which had the, like, the Bitcoin logo uh, on vinyl on the inside of the door. And it like kind of runs up into the, the code of the original Satoshi client uh, on this vinyl. Um, that runs like the full height of the the floor of the, the the first floor of the building, and they always always use that image. And it's like, yeah, can you not get a new one? <laughs> I sat and thought to myself when I got out of prison, do I want to do the same thing again? Do I want to do BitInstant too? I have all this knowledge, made all the mistakes. Um, a lot of investors that potentially would be involved in something like that because I know where the red flags were, and I'm all like you. Uh, paranoid, uh, hyper paranoid, you know, but at the same time, I was like saying to myself, I really don't want to do anything where there's regulations involved. Like, hell, I don't even want to become a barber because you have to get a license, to cut someone's hair in America. Um, you, you decided to launch another company doing something very similar, obviously learning from your own mistakes, uh, 
why did you jump into it? And what are you doing now? And, you know. Yeah. So when I um, was going through uh, an extradition uh, procedure, the first three months, my bail conditions uh, included uh, a curfew on electronic tag. Um, so I had to be in the house for, for so long, uh, like between certain hours. And I just sat down to myself and I thought, over the last uh, five years of my life, maybe 10 years, what have I spent like, the most uh, most amount of like resources and time and uh, effort with? Uh, and I, I came up with two. Um, one was lawyers. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the second one was uh, software developers. Uh, oh. when, we was, when we was building... Um, Neo, we had more than 20 full-time developers and we was paying more than uh, over 100K a month out for developers to get all the software done and ready that we needed to do. Um, ultimately, it never became ready. Um, so I, I thought to myself, what do I do? I, 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 the, the law does interest me um, and having an argument um, can interest me, but uh, it's either a case of do I... Uh, go and do a qualifying law degree uh, and maybe go down the, the legal path in the future uh, because it interested me. And the the other option was do I sit back down and get my head back into to writing some code? Uh, it's something that I've not done since I was like 15, 16 years old personally, other than tinkering around um, uh, and hacking away at little different things. So, I sat down and started uh, doing like, self-teaching, uh, taught myself again how to, to write code um, through JavaScript and then uh, like just PHP and Golang uh, and stuff like that, a bit of Java, uh, Python, and just basically refreshed uh, my knowledge. My, my brain already worked in the, in the uh, logical fashion, um, believe it or not. So I... Um, <laughs> just basically uh, taught myself how to code and then started thinking this is what I ultimately wanted to do uh, was to, to be able to, to make Bitcoin more accessible for more people and um, just started developing and iterating through uh, process um, and then built out a, a physical piece of hardware uh, using a Raspberry Pi, wrote all the software and, and everything for it to, to be able to produce vouchers. Um, couldn't get the economies of scale right, so basically... Uh, got an Android um, device, uh, ordered uh, some Android devices from, from China, had them shipped over, wrote um, some uh, Java-based software to basically produce uh, the vouchers um, and just basically retaught myself how to code and built everything from scratch to, to run the business. Um, so, so you want people to be able to, to access crypto with... with Just Bitcoin. Or just Bitcoin. Yeah, just Bitcoin. Wow, really stuck into your roots. Did you ever, did you ever blame Bitcoin or like you know you went through the criminal justice system? Um, <laughs> sucks. Yeah. Um, really does suck. Did you ever feel like your love lost for for Bitcoin? I can now hands up and say I probably went through uh, a period that was quite depressive. Um, I didn't actually realize at the time. I had over a year away from my daughter uh, who was still in Cyprus. I couldn't travel back there uh, because of everything that was going on. Um, ultimately, I made the right decision because I, I didn't spend any time uh, locked away for, for anything I didn't do. And um, But at that time, I was uh, 
very down, wasn't really interested. Uh, and then basically when I, I had to, to start the fight back, uh, was it only, only then, because there was a period of time um, where everything was just up in the air. I couldn't do anything because um, I was waiting for that knock on the door. Um, and I'd even like volu- like tried to voluntary, uh, voluntarily uh, put myself forward like to the police to say, look, apparently there's a, a European arrest warrant for me or being issued for me. Um, can we get get it sorted so we can get everything moving so I can start fighting this? And they was like, oh, we've got nothing. Uh, there's nothing on record. Um, just go home. We know where to find you uh, if anything comes through. And uh, literally, I think it was like eight months later, uh, somebody came and knocked on my door um, to, to take me away to start fighting it. And only then did I what my mood change. Sorry? What were you arrested for? I was arrested uh, under the Extradition Act because Cyprus uh, was trying to extradite me um, using a, a European arrest warrant. So basically the, the UK law, um, my fight against the, the, the Crown Prosecution Service was a, uh, for, they was acting on behalf of the Cypriot government uh, who was trying to extradite me uh, under the, uh, to, under the uh, European arrest warrant. Why was the Cypriot government uh, issuing an arrest warrant for you? What happened? Okay, um, so they yep. had um, like five... Uh, five crimes are that was detailed. Five crimes. Yeah, yeah. It's actually the, it's it's funny, really. Now looking back, um, I know, isn't it? Like when you, <laughs> um, if you bear me two seconds, I'll actually go and grab the the warrant and read out the actual definite, like the names of each charge. What you were doing was so promising, and um, it's it's almost like what you're doing now is like a personal. Uh, you're like pr- trying to personally vindicate yourself. Knowing you almost want to say to yourself, I need to do this successfully. I fucked up the first time. I effed up the first. Um, I have people listen. Well, if everyone's listening at home, um, sorry if your children are listening and I and I swear, but um you're like revalidating yourself, right? You want to prove to yourself that you can do what you screwed up doing the first time. Like six years ago, you were one of the first people to to raise money, but not just raise money using I think you called like an IPVO. Um, Stupid idea. Well, but but it wasn't a stupid idea. It it's was. Idea. Well, <laughs> Trust me, it was. Yes, it was stupid idea for you to do it because, no offense, but you and I were not like I'm not like I, I won't do an ICO. I'm not like in a position to do that. I'm you know um, I don't think neither would I. And I spent two years telling people stop <laughs> it, don't do it. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them, and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. 
Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. But, um, but what you did was you went out and raised money in a community at the time when it was still very novel and new. You didn't do it in the ICO 2017 fashion. You didn't do it with a, a my to- you didn't do it with a token. There was no like, there was Avlock share, and I'll get into that in a second, but it wasn't, it wasn't the token of the day of the 2017. You know what I mean? It wasn't the oh, yeah. token, I'm going to pump it up. It's going to trade on, a, on an exchange, Binance or whatever. It's going to, everyone's going to make 5X. Your prospectuses didn't say that. It wasn't about that. On this, you know, I thought you were going to take a few minutes. So I was telling, but can you tell us like the, the fundraising aspect of it and then the Havelock investments aspect of it, BitFunder, like what were all these different, you know, BitFunder, Havelock, BTCT, these are non-existent nowadays. Um, most people don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah, he's in prison now. Um, he lied. He lied to the uh, SEC and myself, really. Um, he uh, basically, we raised capital um, through uh, BTC Co, uh, Bitfunder, which was the main one, and uh, Havelock. Um, Bitfunder then decided that um, after after the fact um, to, to tell us that they had uh, been compromised and lost 8,000-odd um, Bitcoins, uh, of which I was the, the largest person to lose out. I think it was about 1,370 Bitcoins, which sounds absolutely insane in today's numbers. Um, so I covered those uh, personally um, to, to replace those uh, in the company. Um, and uh, I flew... Uh, uh, John over f- from from the US to Cyprus to discuss uh, what his plans were to uh, make it right, and uh, he had um, he was in talks with Mark Kapalis, um 
about uh, becoming the, the US arm of Mount Gox, which is obviously a, a huge story in and of itself now uh, with Peter Vanessi's uh, and stuff. Um, but he was uh, in talks to, to do that because he also had a, an Australian-based exchange. Um, we exchange, I believe it was thinking back now, and they was looking to, to do that um, for the for the US market. And I uh, basically got involved with trying to get everybody um, back their, their funds. And he had some funds uh, with him when he came to Cyprus. And I basically told him, right, these need to go back to the people that had uh, balances. So he set it up. Uh, I foregoed my cut of that uh, so he could pay back about 10% of everything that um, – everybody had with him. Uh, and I even gave him 250 Bitcoins to bump that number up. So it was more of a, a round figure. Um, how stupid was I? Um, so, so that, so we basically raised the funds um, like that. And this was like before Bitcoin was like a hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> so and I remember uh, very vividly the day that the, the Silk Road bust happened and uh, Bitcoin tanked and I was uh, a weak hodler uh, back then and thought, oh, we need to uh, sell a big chunk of what we've raised just to make sure that we've got the funds to be able to get like a minimum viable product to uh, to market. Um, but then, uh, so we sold a, a big chunk off and uh, we had the cash to, to move forward with a bare minimum plan. But then after that, the, the November run-up happened, um, which kind of gave us a platform to, to expand upon the ideas uh, and things um, through through ultimately my decisions uh, and my wrong decisions, we uh, expanded like, the marketing, um, the, the, like, the, the type of branches that we were looking to, to build. And, and although they was beautiful, um, it wasn't um, really sustainable in the long term. Um, so we, we tried to address um those those shortcomings uh, by developing other products like the, the Neo Easy Coin, and uh, we was in talks with the Cyprus Stock Exchange about launching um, Bitcoin trading on their new commodity exchange uh, commodities exchange that they was looking to to establish, um, and all sorts. It, it just kind of got far too big, far too quick, uh, with too many fingers in too many pies. Um, that's that's thing. But I guess what happened with communication. Um, what happened with, because there's a huge explosion, especially like on Reddit, on, on social media with employees, investors, and people. And then I know it's always like the vocal minority that's always the loudest. And it came down to like, what are four or five people at the end of the day that, 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 you know, felt like they were owed money? I'm not sure like how many total people, and I'm not minimizing it or discounting it, but um, unlike Mt. Gox, where there are tens of thousands of creditors, uh, and, and uh, it's a very different situation. Um, but what mistakes do you feel like you've made when it comes to how you communicated with people? And as to start a new company and hire new investors with, with you know, bring on new investors and new employees, uh, are you trying to um, address those? I, I, obviously, it's a stupid question. Are you trying to address them? But are you, um, I guess, addressing them head on? Yeah. Uh, so basically, what, uh, what happened was uh, when everything exploded, I... I was in, I held a meeting um, and there was a bit of a mutiny uh, within that meeting led by one person. And that uh, person 
I, I basically left that meeting to, to come back to the UK to, to speak with uh, some investors um, because we needed to, to complete another raise um, to, to be able to, to continue and to also um, like resolve uh, my own personal accounting uh, issues, So, which I, I got resolved. But I also received uh, an email, and I 100% know who sent it, and it's the person that led the mutiny uh, from within the team, basically threatening my daughter. Um, so I, now looking back, mistakenly uh, cut off uh, communication with pretty much everybody there, apart from like two people uh, within the office. And, at the time. Yeah, at the time. Uh, 100% a mistake. Uh, because basically they just, uh, as far as I was concerned, I was done. Uh, they just threatened my daughter's life. And <clears throat> that to me was um, stepping across the, the line. And like I said, it was a mistake on my behalf um, for, for doing that, which gave room for uh, people to, or for, for um, that one person to build their narrative and um, basically through the support of other people around the company, um, uh, basically promote that narrative as being uh, what happened. Even still to this day, some people um, have m like misconceptions about what happened because of what was uh, put out by those people uh, at that time, uh, especially in the media, um, it, it, including the mainstream media. So... So, yeah, it's 100% my fault that I completely um, cut off the, that communication with the, uh, with the team that was in the office. Um, going back, if it would have been possible, I'd have walked into that uh, person's office and uh, literally just, just had it yeah. out with him physically. Um, I, I, I'm not one for holding uh, a grudge or, or anything like that. Pretty much, every, like the the people that made the accusations in this warrant, uh, in the in the warrant against me, um, are pretty much on a personal level. Uh, I can for, forgive them for for believing uh, that person's narrative um, that they was building and stuff. But for that one person, yeah, I don't know what my reaction would be confronted with them. You, you indirectly taught me how to forgive in a way because um, when it blew up on your side. I was still very much involved in the space. Uh, this was, you know, before my ship blew up. And I was working very hard to, you know, promote Bitcoin and push the world forward with, with Bitcoin. And when your ship blew up, um, I felt it, I took it, me personally, I'm telling you honestly, I took it as, as I took it very personally. And I was angry. Uh, in fact, like when Jake would wear the shirt for the first few times, I was like, dude, like, what, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like out of satire or whatever. Um, but time, um, and then I went through my own, I went through my own shit and I, the same effect that the same feelings that I felt, the same anger that I felt towards you is the same anger that a lot more people felt towards me. Um, and my shit really blew up the industry in, in a lot worse of a way, in a way that I still feel guilty about, um, you know, because a lot of people worked very hard to, to, to continue making Bitcoin look like the shining city on the hill. Um, and so I had to cope with uh, the idea of saying to myself now, um, if, I can, if, if I can forgive those people who are angry with me 
And if I could understand, if I can, um, if those people can forgive me, and if I can understand, you know, if I can say to myself, I understand why those people were angry at me, then how is that fair that I was angry at you? Uh, and that's one of the reasons that spurred me to email you to come on the show. You see, I, the, the thing for me is I, I, I've never really been an angry person. Um, oh, you're lucky. Geez. I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Middle I, Eastern, though. You know, the, living in Cyprus, that we're very hot-blooded. Yeah. Um, but personally, I, yeah, it, it takes a lot to really piss me off. Um, but the, but I also understand that a lot of people that have shown um, negativity towards me, like the people that go and tell me to, to go and hang myself, this, that, and the other, uh, at that point in time, it doesn't really happen now. Um, but at that point in time, the people that, I, I knew that they was um, basing their anger uh, on information that wasn't quite true. And I'm never going to hold that against them. Uh, I, I'm not going to waste the, the brain cycles um, worrying about it too much. Um, and I think it was Krista Rose, of all people, that said to me, you're never going to win the court of public opinion, especially on somewhere like Twitter. Um, I'm never going to win the court of public opinion that is literally the best advice anyone can ever take away from this show if you ever never listen to this show ever again that is the most important thing you'll ever learn on this damn show this is literally i literally am releasing episode 75 next week and if you that is the most can you repeat that um you're never going to win the court of public opinion it's true it's very true so yeah, if, if people are, are basing their information, their their attitude towards me uh, from a position of being misinformed, and, and some people, uh, people like Dan Held, uh, um, are absolutely adamant that I'm literally one of the worst people walking uh, in Bitcoin, um, based on information from people that he uh, clearly trusts, and I, I know full well that the information that they've received isn't quite right, and when when challenged to, uh, to, to open up a dialogue about what their opinions are, they spout utter nonsense. And it's just so clearly evident that that they don't actually know uh, what they're talking about. So how can I be angry at that? Um, I'd rather walk away and just get on with something a bit more productive. Once you got arrested, um, what happened next? And what was your... You know, what was your experience like dealing with the criminal justice system in, in Cyprus? How were you treated? Oh, I, I was never arrested in Cyprus. Uh, I was arrested um, in the UK. I literally came back to the UK for five days and I'm still here now, um, which I'm absolutely fine with. Uh, but I was arrested on uh, one offence of forgery, uh, one offence of uttering a false document, uh, one offence of obtaining goods by false pretenses, one offence of obtaining... Uh, credit by false pretenses, one offence of theft, uh, one offence of procuring execution documents by false pretenses, and to top it off, uh, one offence of money laundering from illegal activities. Um, Got to throw that money laundering in there, don't they? <laughs> yeah, because that carries the fourteen-year sentence, which yeah, gave them me too. Yeah, which gave them the um, because each of those. <laughs> Uh, and, and it was an accusation warrant. I was never actually charged or tried for any of these uh, crimes. These was purely uh, accusations. And 
the the money laundering was a, a strange one because I never actually received uh, money for any of the offences um, apart from one, and that one was somebody that had bought Bitcoin from me personally, and I was holding on to it until Neo was ready to provide the services to them, and the the contract that we drew up for the for this exchange it was a cash exchange it was twenty thousand euros and they bought twenty thousand euros uh, of bitcoins from me and i was holding on to them uh, and then everything went crazy uh, and they went to the police and said oh he's disappeared um with his with his money and but as soon as everything happened and as soon as i got uh, notified um uh, of absolutely anything i reached out to this person uh, that i was holding uh, these bitcoins for and there was like three other people that was in exactly the same boat um so i reached out to them all individually i said look if you send me a bitcoin address um go see like go speak to um somebody that can set you up an address and t- uh, two of them uh, set up accounts with kraken got their accounts verified we deposited the the bitcoins to their kraken accounts and <clears throat> the, there was another one where uh, i just sent the the bitcoins to their address that they provided to me uh, and this the, the last one uh, i said to him i know full well that you haven't got the technical capabilities of uh, doing it um when we spoke to it, when i spoke to him when we uh, sold it sold the the bitcoins to him uh, so i just said to him i'll have the 20,000 year i will buy buy them back from you at the same price i, I lost out on the deal um but i said and i'll have the funds deposited to your bank account um so i had somebody go and pay twenty thousand euros in cash into his bank account but that complaint never got pulled from the police they kept it open and so i've got two receipts for ten thousand euros each for the deposits into this guy's bank account for for those uh for those bitcoins that i was apparently uh, withholding from him or that i had stolen uh, and everything else was um borderline uh, a practical joke that was included in the warrant and they uh, i went through 11 months of extradition proceedings after being arrested uh, the first night that i got arrested i got held by the police it was absolutely fine with me um i'm not an arsehole i was not angry or um for want of a better term kicking off with the police um, i was just talking to them uh, basically just going through the warrant and writing down everything uh, in relation to um, how I knew that the um, the accusations was wrong. Like I knew I had the receipts from that uh, Bitcoin exchange uh, and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I got arrested, got held by the police uh, overnight, then got drove down to Westminster Magistrates Court, um, which is where they try all of the extradition cases, uh, including um, Julian Assange, uh, and everything so that's like the the main court for this type of thing in the uk um i got into court at uh, about four thirty in the afternoon the following day after being ar- uh, arrested and my bail was granted uh, i had to pay a, a deposit which is a like a cash deposit um but the cash desk closed at like quarter to five um in the evening and i got my bail granted like literally three minutes before. Um, so I couldn't make the deposit. So I had to wait until the next day. So I, I went and did one night in jail um, whilst I was waiting for uh, my my deposit to be paid um, for my bail. <laughs> wow. 
I don't think I'd want to get arrested in the UK. It sounds it sounds from your experience and Julian Assange's experience as it sounds harrowing. Oh, abs- no, I, I was absolutely fine. Um, I knew full well um, from books that I'd read previously just what I needed to do to to get by uh, for my one night um, in jail. So I managed to end up with like stacks of like uh, rolling tobacco sandwiches, crisps. Um, I, I, I shared a, a cell on the uh, on the for the for the night with a guy that was being extradited to Portugal for armed robbery. Um, <laughs> but but I, I made sure that everything that I basically made it sweet for us. Um, and then the next morning, uh, I knew that I was going home that day um, because my my bail was paid and uh, and everything. But uh, it actually stretched that day out until like six pm. Um, because the day before the prison had actually released somebody early by mistake. Um, so every bit of paperwork was being like cross-checked four or five times to make sure that it wasn't happening uh, because it made the front pages of the newspaper that this guy had been let out a day earlier from the prison. Um, so it delayed my release by a couple of hours. Um, but we got there in the end, um, which was followed by three months on uh, electronic tag. Um, and then... Uh, in total, 11 months of extradition proceedings of being on bail and uh, having to go down to Westminster um, every two, three months. And they say that this process should take no longer than 10 days. Um, but yeah, it took 11 months. 11 months. Yes. That's actually quick in terms of like <laughs> criminal, because my my whole situation was actually from arrest to sentence was 11 months too. And that was quick. That was See, because but- like... My first meeting with my lawyer was like, let's get this shit done. Yeah. Um, well, this was this wasn't the actual like a criminal case. This was a are we going to send you to Cyprus so they can do the whole criminal part? Um, but but you still would have gotten like credit for for a time served, though. No. Right. No, Even no, if no, like no. a house arrest type of situation. No, not for really? extradition. Yeah. Um, there was 34 years that they were looking to, to throw at me. Um, but the. Out of nowhere, uh, after 11 months, uh, I got a letter from uh, my barrister that just basically said they've withdrawn the warrant. They no longer want you. Really? Yeah. Um, then what I found out had happened was they're in Cyprus, everybody seems to know everybody. Um, and there was uh, an anti-corruption uh, investigation into the Economics Crimes Unit, uh, I believe. This is the, the story that um, uh, I believe happened. Um and basically, the the head of the uh, department that was on my case basically uh, got changed, and then suddenly it just got dropped. And they said, "Oh, from the very beginning, I said I can explain all of these um, accusations. I've got evidence for most of them that aren't uh, to prove that they're not actually true." Um, so, so I said, "There's uh, uh, a clause in the uh, European restaurant that will allow you to interview me here in London." Um, if you're willing to do that. And they was not, they was adamant. They wanted me over there um, to face, um, to be questioned about these, um, these allegations. And then out, like I say, out of nowhere, they they just dropped it. And I was like, you release from your bail conditions. Um, and if there's ever been a ton of bricks lifted from anybody's shoulders, I felt it then um, just reading that email. From, <laughs> oh my God. Um, so you have it framed. Uh, I do have the. I actually have another one that came later. 
um, framed. <laughs> and I've, well, I've actually got two. Wow. Uh, uh, one that I carry with my passport for when I'm traveling that basically says um, the warrant got sorted and dropped and everything because I still get stopped when trying to get into some European countries. Um, yeah. But the uh, so they, they dropped it and they agreed to, to fly two officers over uh, to interview me at the Cypriot Embassy in London. Um, but they wouldn't allow me to have a, a lawyer present uh, when they interviewed me. And it was a five-hour interview. Um, I recorded it on my phone um, because they wouldn't allow me to have a, a lawyer present. I only agreed to do it because if they tried to um, turn around and then extradite me again, I could prove then um, that Cyprus didn't really care too much about my, um, my Wait, rights. Wait, they let you record it on your phone? No, they didn't. No, it was like literally just sat on the table. I recorded it. Um, oh, yeah, um, because I, I didn't want to be stitched up. Um, yeah, I don't blame you. I'm surprised they even let you keep your phone in the room. Yeah, they literally, uh, by the end of the interview, five-hour interview, um, they they said to, said, I, I said to, so I, I went through everything. I showed them all of like the emails, the, the bank deposit receipts and, and everything. Um, and they by the end of the interview, they said, uh, turn around and said to me, oh, so what, what's your plans now? I said, oh, what would you do if you was me? And they said, oh, if they cost cost me uh, a lot of money, I'd see them all in court. Um, so that was the uh, the police's attitude after interviewing me, uh, after what was about like two years um, of all of this. Their, their advice to me was basically sue these people um, for making these accusations. Um, How do you feel now? Um, I... I, I I feel great now. Um, I have built something. Um, people that uh, were invested um, in uh, Neon B, I'm literally about 20% of the way uh, to getting all of that settled. Um, what I'm building with Fast Bitcoins, we're growing about 70% a month or 74% a month on average since um, last May. Um, this month's going to be slightly uh, different because of everything that's happening. Um, but it's going from strength to strength. Uh, we've got our own uh, challenges um, that we all seem to go through, um, but they're good problems to have because they're all growing pains. Um, so we've literally uh, started building an update to, to our service that we're looking to launch on like, April the 20th, uh, which will address many of the issues. It's a much better looking uh, user interface. Um, I should have the, the time to, to get more people um, settled uh, from like Neo and B days um, so I can finally start to um, put nails in that coffin uh, and move on. Um, family life is great. My daughter's great. I've got uh, four brilliant stepkids. So life's good, uh, apart from not being able to, to go out more than once a day to walk the dogs. You know, you sound like a man who's come to terms with where he is in his life and um, you know, his mistakes and, uh, you sound like you're still working with, uh, the investors and different people who were involved in the UNB, which, you know, is, uh, honorable, um, of yeah, you. even some of the people that was invested, uh, they're like, Danny, why are you so adamant in, in, in sorting it? And it's like, because that's just who I am. And they're like, people should be more responsible and, uh, accept they took the risks that they took, uh, and things like that. But yeah, they did. Um, but they didn't ask for all of the bullshit that came with it um, in the end. Uh, so if I can make things right for as many people as possible, um, then the, the world's good. 
from I guess like the only you know the, like the response that I'll have to that is like um the only sad thing is that it takes going through a very traumatic you know like life event to try to like become the person who you were meant to be in the first place do you, like, do you agree do you kind of under, like, agree with that or, or see where I'm I'm going with this it's like who you are now is who you should be should have been when you become an adult right like a man or a woman or whatever. oh absolutely I'm, I'm gonna level with you here we had one conversation on skype um back then and i thought i came off the phone and i thought he's a bit arrogant um about you and i've heard i you was like, <laughs> same here um, no, I was. And, and i look back now on those times and i think wow, how wrong was i uh, on so many things um and now it's, I understand that I, I'm more aware that I can still be wrong. But, and I'm just reserved and just keep my head down um, and just build uh, and hope that, uh, and do everything in my power um, to, to make or to get people to, to use the service that I'm building. Um, I, I still don't think there's uh, too much competition in anything in Bitcoin. Um, I think the, the pie is still so massive um, that there's room in the markets for absolutely anybody. And I've got the utmost respect for anybody that puts their meat on the block uh, and builds something that gets some real use. Um, and, and, and we've completely bootstrapped uh, Fast Bitcoins. Um, there's uh, two co-founders and a, a, a small team of people that are helping me build, build out now uh, and grow. Um, and I feel like we're we're getting shit done before we're talking about it. Uh, and like I say, I've got the utmost respect with anybody that builds something in this space, uh, even if they don't like me or um, they uh, are vocally opposed to me uh, or anything like that. I just wish them nothing but the best. Well, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on the show today. And I wish you and your family the best of luck and health. And to all the listeners, of course, you and your family is the best of of health and, and safety and, and luck. And hopefully we all get out of this and it's nice to kind of kick back and chat and talk about, you know, stories and, and reflect to get our mind off of this freaking coronavirus already. I'm sick of talking about it. So thank you. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of untold stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7am EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem. To continue the conversation, send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.